0: It's good to be with you guys this morning. Glad to have you all here and those folks that are watching online. Hope everybody had a great Thanksgiving. We did. We were in Germany. In case you didn't know, um, our oldest son, Andrew, got married last week. So that was a great event for us all, and we made it back safely. Hey, I wanted to clarify um, one thing before I get going because it's really been bothering me. I've been getting some comments about... Uh, this beard that I'm in, in the process of growing and it has nothing to do with Santa Claus, all right? So if you can just drop the Santa comments, I would greatly appreciate it. You know, it's it's interesting, isn't it, how um some people make assumptions, right? How how they jump to conclusions, they they pass judgment on you, and I'm feeling a little judged right now. I'm really just trying to get into character for Christmas Eve, so you'll appreciate it more when we get there. But uh have you ever noticed, um just all kidding aside, how how we do have a, a tendency to rush to judgment without getting all the facts and how we make assumptions and oftentimes we assume the worst of people instead of the best of people. You ever struggle with that? You ever experience that personally? Well, this morning, we're going to take a look at that. Um, We're going to see how that took place within the Israelite community and um, hopefully there's going to be something that we can glean, that we can apply to our lives and learn from. So we're going to be in Joshua chapter 22. If you want to follow along in your Bibles, in the church Bibles, it's page 229. Feel free to do that. Um, Sutton did a great job last week covering Joshua chapter 21, and um, we've been going through the entire book of Joshua. If you haven't been with us, you could catch up and go back and watch or listen to some of the the message on that, but Sutton did a great job of sort of wrapping up this, this portion of history where the Israelites had come into what we know as the promised land of God, and then all the land had been distributed to them as their inheritance, and the final step was to allocate cities for the Levites. So the Levites were that one one group, that one clan, if you will, who whose job it was to serve God in his tabernacle, which was like the place of meeting. Um, it's kind of like church today, if you will. And they weren't allocated land, but they were allocated cities to live in. And so Sudden covered that, and he also pointed out that all the promises that God had given to the Israelites had now come to fulfillment. They had come to fulfillment. So today we pick up in Joshua chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. Then Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You've done all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, and you have obeyed me in everything I commanded for a long time now to this very day. You've not deserted your fellow Israelites, but have carried out the mission the Lord your God gave you. Now that the Lord your God has given them rest as he promised return to your homes in the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. So if you've been with us from the beginning, you may recall that as the Israelites, they were following Moses at the time. And remember, he had led them out of slavery in Egypt, and he brought them to the brink of the promised land. But they hadn't yet crossed over into the Jordan. So When they were there, and so they're east of the Jordan River, there were two tribes, Reuben and Gad, and then half of the tribe of Manasseh that asked Moses if they could just have their inheritance of the land right there in what we know as modern-day Jordan. They were content with that land instead of crossing over into what is formally known as the promised land. And so he agreed. He said, you can have your portion of the inheritance right here. East of the Jordan. But there's one stipulation. One stipulation. All of your soldiers, all your fighting men, they still got to cross over. And they have to fight alongside their brothers until everybody has received their inheritance of land. And they agreed to do that. And they left their wives and they left their children. They left this new land that they had been given to go and fight for their brothers and their sisters to fight for that land, Now, it took over five years of fighting before that was a reality, and that's where we come now. Now, I want to share with you in, in verse 5, Joshua gives this two and a half tribes some words of encouragement, some words to live by. <clears throat> so listen to this. He said, but be very careful to keep the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you to love the Lord your God. To walk in obedience to him, to keep his commands, to hold fast to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua is exhorting the two and a half tribes that are finally going home. And he's telling them cling to God, cling to God, cling to his word, his ways, cling to him. He was, in essence, saying, God has to be your anchor. He's got to be your anchor. Make sure you are always tethered to him because life is tough, and and you've already experienced that. And and there's going to be waves of change and and just winds that come and, and toss you to and fro in life. But if you just remain tethered to God, tethered to God, you'll survive. You won't be capsized. You won't be destroyed upon the jagged rocks. Just cling to God. Stay tethered to God. May God be your anchor. That was the message of encouragement he had for that two and a half, for those two and a half tribes. But I think it's also a message for us today. It's a message for us today to cling to God, to stay tethered to him. God has to be our anchor. He's got to be our anchor. So, um, He's given them these words of encouragement, these words to live by, and then in verses six through eight, we see that he blesses them, and, and they're sent home, and uh, they're not sent home empty-handed. So they've been away at war, and they, they've conquered a lot of different cities, and um, they've received plunder, and so he sends them home, and they, they have herds of livestock, cattle, sheep, Goats. Can you imagine these soldiers? And they get all, all this cattle and goats and everything going with them. And then they have wagon loads of gold and silver, of bronze and iron, and then a boatload of clothes, like, like some of the best clothing in all the world. They have more than enough for themselves. And they're told to go and share this plunder with their fellow Israelites when they get home. Now, here's the thing. Imagine these soldiers making this great journey home, But before they cross back over the Jordan to where their wives and their children are waiting, they stop. They stop. And they build this incredible altar, this incredible altar to God. Now, follow along with me in verses 13 through 14, because, or uh, no, let me back up. Let me back up to 11, because here, here's the challenge that's, that's going on here. Um, actually, let me back up. I'm way ahead of myself. Let me go back to nine. Look, I'm just speeding right through this. This could be the best sermon ever. The, uh, or maybe my shortest. But you, you get to nine. So he's sending them with all this, this, this plunder, all these goods. And then in verse nine, we see that they, they start heading out. And then verse 10, it says, when they came to Gileloth, Near the Jordan in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. They built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. Okay, so this is where I was going. So they stop before they cross back over, they stop and they build this huge altar right there. Now, here, here's what's odd about that. We're, we're not in the altar building business these days, so it may seem a little strange to us. But um, according to Deuteronomy chapter 12, so God had given some different instructions. He said that there would be only one altar that the Israelites would have. And this altar would reside in this place called Shiloh, the city of Shiloh. And at Shiloh, they would also erect the tabernacle. So that's like this big tent of meeting, like the church where they would come. And then there would be the big altar in front where they would offer up their sacrifices and their offerings to God. And that was supposed to be the only altar. So when they stop before they get back home and they build this big altar, word gets back to the nine and a half tribes that are left, and, and they're starting to scratch their head and they're going, What's going on? What are these guys up to? And instead of asking them, going to the two and a half tribes and asking them, they act. They act before asking. They act before asking. This is critical. This is critical. This is a lesson for us to learn. Now, verses 11 and 12. And when the Israelites heard that they had built the altar on the border of Canaan at Gileloth, near the Jordan on the Israelite side, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. Did you pick up on that? The whole assembly gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. Now picture the scene. These are their brothers that they, they've been fighting shoulder to shoulder with them for more than 5 years. They they left their wives and their children and the land that they had been given behind to go fight with them so that they could claim their land as their inheritance. And like that, before they even made their way home, their brothers are assembling to go to war against them. That They've rushed to judgment. They've made assumptions. And you know what happens when we assume, right? Okay. So uh, they've made some assumptions. They were false assumptions. They didn't have all the information. But imagine, they have already gathered to go to war with their brothers, who, again, remember Joshua? He just got done commending them. For their faithfulness. He said, you guys have been faithful. You are faithful to follow everything Moses commanded. You've been faithful to follow everything I commanded. You have fought by your brothers. Now go home and here's my blessing. Here's all this plunder. They haven't even made it home and, and their brothers are getting ready to rage and wage a war against them. To kill them. What is going on? So they build this altar. Now fortunately before the war broke out, some, some more... Um, godly wisdom prevailed here. Look at verses 13 and 14. It says, So the Israelites sent Phinehas, not Phinehas and Ferb, but Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest, to the land of Gilead, to Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. With him they sent ten of the chief men, one from each of the tribes of Israel, each the head of a family division among the Israelite clans. So they're sending this group with them. Things are going well right now. Verse 15, when they went to Gilead to Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh, they said to them, Now listen to this and try and imagine the tone and the force coming through with this. So the whole assembly of the Lord says, So clearly they've been talking amongst themselves. The nine and a half tribes, they're talking, they're passing judgment, they're rushing to judgment, they're making assumptions. Listen to what they're saying. How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against him now? Was not the sin of Peor enough for us? Up to this very day, we have not not cleansed ourselves from that sin, even though a plague fell on the community of the Lord. And are you now turning away from the Lord? If you rebel... Against the Lord today, tomorrow, he will be angry with the whole community of Israel. Those are some mighty big assumptions, aren't they? They have definitely rushed to judgment. Look at the accusations. They're accusing them of breaking faith with the God of Israel. How could you do that? How could you break faith? They go on and say, you've turned away from the Lord. You've turned away from the Lord. And if that's not enough, if that's not harsh enough, They accused him of rebelling against him, of actually rebelling against God. Those were the assumptions they made. They had rushed to judgment because they had gotten word that they had built this altar. Instead of asking the two and a half tribes what was going on, they rushed to judgment. They rushed to a judgment and they made assumptions. Now, they were also concerned um, not only for the well-being of the two, two and a half tribes, but also for all of their well-being. Because sin does not affect just one person. It, it tends to have far-reaching effects, doesn't it? We know that personally in our lives. And, and they referred to this time in this land called Peor, where some of the Israelites had, had sinned, they, where they, in essence they had turned their back on God, which they're cautioning against here, and they just went and did what seemed right to them at, at the time. And they engaged in some activities which... Are, are less than good and godly. And you can read about that in Numbers 25 if you want some more details. And, and God brought some punishment, some consequences. Because of the sin of a few, the entire nation was suffering under a plague. Now, in verse 20, they're also going to reference the sin of Achan. And we met Achan all the way back in, in Joshua chapter 7. And you may recall that, that Achan was one of the Israelite soldiers, and they had Gone and, and they had taken the land, and they were told not to take any plunder for themselves. And what did he do? Like, he took some. And he thought it's no big deal, and, and he hid it in his tent. And guess what? He got found out, because that's what happens. Like, you get found out. You think you're hiding stuff. <laughs> you're not. You're going to get found out. And so it cost him his life. But not just his life, but his whole family. They all paid. So there's consequences to sin that are far reaching. And so the nine and a half tribes, they were concerned about that, not just for the ill effects that would come upon the two and a half tribes, but upon them as well. Now, um, you know, sometimes when you make these judgments, you make these assumptions, it's not because you have bad intent, but it doesn't mean the actions are correct either and I think we're going to get a glimpse now that I think part of the heart, part of the motivation was pure. Listen to, to verse 19. It says, and this is Eleazar, or, or uh, Eleazar's son Phineas speaking. He says, if the land you possess is defiled, so you remember that those guys had settled east of the Jordan, and, and so they're saying, if the land you possess is defiled, come over to the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and share the lamb with us. But do not rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar for yourselves, other than the altar of the Lord our God. And so here, in the midst of all these false assumptions, this rush to judgment, I I hear a pure motive come and saying, look, I don't know why you're building an altar. have some thoughts, maybe it's because you don't like the land you settled for, and maybe since you've been over here, you realize that it's really nicer over here, and if you've been in the holy land, like, Israel is a lot nicer than Jordan, let me tell you, and and so they extend this offer, and they say, if if you're not content with the land that, that you settled for under Moses, come on over, like, we'll redistribute the land. It was a heart of compassion, I believe. So it's not all bad, even though their actions, I think, were wrong. Maybe their hearts weren't completely impure. But now try and imagine that you're a member, you're one of those soldiers in the two and a half tribes. You haven't even made it home yet. Your brothers are already assembling to wage war against you. This delegation has come, and they start making these accusations saying that you've turned your back on God, you're rebelling against God, how would you feel? How would you feel if you were one of them? Would you be a little confused maybe? Like, what are you talking about? What, what do you mean re- rebel against God, turn our backs on God? What do you mean come over and you'll redistribute the land? What are you talking about? W- would you feel a little hurt by them? That they've assumed the worst of you? Especially, I mean, you put your life on the line. You've been fighting for them and with them for over five years. Would, would you maybe take what we call the bait of Satan and feel offended? Would you get angry? Maybe to the point where you're like, you want to go to war? I'll give you war, right? Like, would you feel some of those things? I, I'm guessing that's what was going on in their hearts. Like, how could you so quickly turn on us and, and want to kill us? Well, I think we're guilty of doing that ourselves. And, and it's really hurtful, isn't it, when you're on that side, when, when somebody's questioning your heart, your motives, your actions, When they made judgments and assumptions about you without ever even coming to ask, what are you up to? Look at verses 21 through 23 with me. This is their response. Then Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manassas replied to the heads of the clans of Israel. And and, listen to this. They're like, the mighty one of God, the Lord. The mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows And let Israel know, if this has been in rebellion or disobedience to the Lord, do not spare us this day. If we have built our own altar to turn away from the Lord and to offer burnt offerings and grain offerings or to sacrifice fellowship offerings on it, may the Lord himself call us to account. In other words, they're saying, praise the God Almighty. Praise the God Almighty. And if we've done anything that is wrong, if our hearts have not been right in this, Put us to death. May may God himself put us to death. You can put us to death. They go on and, and they begin to reveal why they built the altar. They say, no, we did it for fear that someday your descendants, your descendants might say to ours, what do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord's made the Jordan a boundary between us and you. You Reubenites and Gadites. You have no share in the Lord, so your descendants might cause ours to stop fearing the Lord. That's why we said, let us get ready and build an altar, but not for burnt offerings or sacrifices. On the contrary, it's to be a witness between us and you and the generations to come. That we will worship the Lord at his sanctuary with burnt offerings, sacrifices, and fellowship offerings. Then in the future, your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no share in the Lord. And we said, if they ever say this to us or to our descendants, we will answer. Look at the replica of the Lord's altar, which our ancestors built. Not for burnt offerings and sacrifices, but as a witness between us and you. It's to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us to rebel against the Lord and turn away from him today by building an altar for burnt offerings, grain offerings, and sacrifices, other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. The two and a half tribes were building this altar before they ever made it home because they knew the importance. They knew how quickly people would forget. And they were concerned about the future and future generations, that because they were now separated by this boundary, the Jordan River, that the folks on the Upper West Side might think less of the people on the Lower East Side. You know what I'm talking about? And so they might be passing judgment. They're like, you're not part of us. I mean, you live on that side of the tracks, right? But we live on this side. This is where the God's people live. I don't know about you all. And they're saying, no, we, we see that coming. Like, that's our natural tendency because we are not inherently good, believe it or not, people. And, and so they recognize and they said, nope, before we even cross over, we're going to build this big old altar, And it's not because we're trying to turn or rebel against God. It's not because we want to do it our own way and offer our own sacrifices. No, we're still going to make that journey to the one true altar in front of the tabernacle. But we want it to be a sign to you and everybody that comes after you that we're one people. We may be divided by a river, but we're one people. We're we're still one family. We worship the one true God. That's why we built the altar Man, the nine and a half tribes and their leaders, they missed it, didn't they? They were ready to wage war to kill their brothers who had fought side by side with them because they had rushed the judgment. They had made wrong assumptions. Well, Phineas is like, man, that is so good to hear and, and the other leaders were like, oh, thank God, that's the truth. You haven't, like, distanced yourself from, from God. You're, you're still saying, we, we stand with God. We trust God. We are anchored to God. Praise the Lord. And then they went home. They went back to Shiloh where, again, everybody was assembling for war. And they said, go home. Go home. Put down your weapons. These are our brothers. And this is why they built the altar. And then the last line of the chapter says this. It says, And the Reubenites and the Gadites gave their altar this name. It's a witness between us that the Lord is God. That altar is a witness between us that the Lord is God. It's a witness. It's a witness. See, that, that altar was to be this physical image that represented um, their faithfulness and their oneness see god's all about unity god is all about unity and how quickly that that can be broken the two and a half tribes they hadn't even made their way home yet and already their their brothers are ready to wage war against them to kill them because they rushed to judgment and they made these False assumptions? You know, it's interesting. If, if you keep reading through history and reading through the Bible, um, you're going to see that for a while, they maintained that unity, that, that sense of oneness as, as a community, as a nation. But as the years turned into decades and the decades turned into centuries, guess what happened? not just the folks on the east side of the River Jordan, but also the folks on the west side, they sort of detached from God. They were all guilty of rebelling against God and and turning their backs on God, just like all of us have done at some point or another. And they suffered. You know, they, they began to drift away from God. And, you know, they suffered, you know, destruction along the, the jagged rocks of life, and, and they experience what it is to have your life and your faith capsized. Uh, you'll, you'll read and, and learn how the nation of Israel was captured, how they were exiled, and this happened not just once, but multiple times. They suffered. Again, the sins of a few affect the, sin, affect the many, and they had to live this out. Now, fortunately, God had a plan, He had a solution to this, and that's why he sent Jesus. So 1,400 years or so after Joshua died, Jesus was born, and Jesus was the solution. See, Jesus came to earth to take upon himself all of our sin, all of the penalty of sin. He came to unify us once again, not just unify the Israelites as a nation, but to unify all people with their creator with their God, that's what Jesus accomplished, and and He did that by by dying on a cross for us. And it, it was like He was reaching out to us, and He's holding on to God the Father, and He's like that tether that that links us to God, the anchor of our souls, of our lives, and and He's the one that came to make the difference. And now instead of having some big old um, you know, altar in the wilderness to be our symbol of unity, to be the witness that we follow God, now we have a cross. And more importantly, I think, we have an empty tomb. Because Jesus died, but death wasn't the end. He rose from the dead. He conquered death. And that's our hope. And that no matter what happens to us in this life, if we remain tethered to God through Jesus Christ, through faith in him, we never need to fear. Fear. Our lives will never be completely capsized we will never be completely destroyed we may suffer loss but because of jesus christ we never need to fear death never never see that's the beauty now here's the 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 reality and this is a sad reality like this isn't the first time i've, I've spoken a message like this before this certainly if you've been around at all Isn't the first time I talked about taking the bait, you know, and choosing to be offended and being divided and getting angry with others? It's not the first. And yet, we need to hear it again and again and again. Because I think you're like me. I I know this to be true, and it doesn't matter whether you follow Jesus or not. This, This is just cold, hard facts, isn't it? Like, this is the truth. We know it, but yet I fall into it time and time again, right? Let me give you just a recent example, Um, and this occurred right before Thanksgiving. We're part of what's called the West Point Society in southwestern Virginia, so it's a group of folks. It's just a social group for the most part, and to be a part of this, um, you either had to go to West Point and um, be a graduate or related to the graduate, or you have to have a a child that went to West Point. And so we're in there, not because I was bright enough to ever go somewhere like that, but fortunately, God gave us Andrew, right? You know, so now I feel like I'm special. You know, but anyhow, that's how you get in this society. And so they get together, and um, they... for instance, they'll all get together next week and celebrate the and watch the Army Navy game together. That's a big event, or sending off the new cadets that go to the United States military. Kind of mean different functions like that, and so not much has been going on in the last two years, as you can imagine. They haven't been gathering, and people hadn't been paying these small dues. And so the guy who is a, a retired retar- um, grad from West Point and Army officer, he just sends out an email, and he does this. Voluntarily, he's the head of the society. And this is what the email said. Since the society is coming back to life, it's time to consider where you stand regarding membership dues. And then there was a link so that you could give your membership dues. Anything offensive about that to anybody? You start passing judgment, rushing to judgment, making assumptions, probably not, right? It's pretty just benign. But here's the problem. So he signed his name, and then under it was a three-word sentence that many people think is funny today, and it's a recent three-word sentence that has come to our eyes and ears. But it's political in nature, and it's polarizing depending on which side of the aisle you happen to find yourself on. And so this three-word closing statement caused some people to rush to judgment and to make assumptions. And so within 30 minutes, my inbox is blowing up, right? And I'm like, holy cow, what is going on here? And these, some people are shooting off emails. They're like, take me off this mailing list. I'm no longer a part of this society. I can't believe that you would sign off with this and that. And I was like, oh my goodness. And, 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 I'm looking, and by the end of the day, there's just so many emails that, that the guy resigns. He's like, uh, I'm out. Like, I was just volunteering, you know, to help bring us together, and all of a sudden, like, there's a war that has broken out here. It's a war of words, and, and people have attacked one another. These are, in some cases, men who have fought, literally fought, shoulder to shoulder with each other, and because of that three-word sentence, they immediately turn on them. Couldn't believe it. I wanted to join the war. (laughs) I was ready to rush to judgment and make my own assumptions. Fortunately, I didn't, and I just sat back. But I wasn't innocent, because... Even though I didn't respond to the war of words, I already engaged. I engaged in my mind and I engaged in my heart. I was guilty. And I know better. How do we stop this? My answer is we've got to look to Jesus. We've got to go back to Joshua 22.5. We've we got to start really applying these words of encouragement and exhortation. We've got to cling to Jesus. If we are not tethered to God, if he is not our anchor, how quickly do we just drift off? How quickly are we distanced from God? And all that he says is right and true, how we should think, how we should behave. How quickly do we find ourselves capsized or smashed against the rocks of life? How often do we find ourselves as we drift from God at war with one another where relationships are forever broken and lost? See, I I think verse five is the key. We have to love the Lord our God because he has clearly shown his love for us, hasn't he? And, And we have to walk in obedience to him. We gotta trust that he knows better than we do. And along those lines, we have to keep his commands. His ways are always better than ours, even though we think we may know better. We have to hold fast to him. Hold fast to him because By holding fast to him, being tethered with him, anchored to him. That's the only way that we survive throughout this life. And then ultimately, we have to serve him with all our heart and with all our soul because there is nothing else that really matters compared to that. And so as you feel yourself drifting, and maybe you find yourself rushing to judgment or or making some assumptions, drawing conclusions without really having ever gone to the other person, Think about that. How closely are you tethered to God? Is this how God would have you respond? Jesus came to bring us to unity. He, his prayer was that we would be one like He and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit are one. We need to be unified first with God, then with each other. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you so much that um, we can read an ancient text and it can speak like today, like the, the setting and the people, the culture may have changed, but nothing's really changed. We still struggle with rushing to judgment, with drawing conclusions without really finding the answers beforehand. We find ourselves at war with our brothers and our sisters And we would never want that for ourselves. We would never want somebody rushing and passing judgment upon us and questioning us without asking us, and yet we do it all the time, far too often. Lord, may we cling to you. May may you be our anchor. Jesus, may you tether us to the truth, the hope that we have in this miraculous God, this one God, in three persons god the father god the son god the holy spirit amen